where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, how are you doing after this epic episode? Just fantastic, Ryan. We brought on Hugh Carp from the Nexus Mutual Project. Nexus Mutual and insurance on, on DeFi, insurance on Ethereum, is one of those things that you know, when I first saw it, I was like, you know what, that's that's never going to work. In my bear market mind, I was like, that's never going to work. Like, you can't do insurance on DeFi. And, you know, shame, shame on me for being a, a bear market pessimist. But now that now that the bull market is here and, and looking deeper into Nexus Mutual, it just makes so much sense. Like, if you wanted to just, like, take the, the institution of insurance and make a DeFi version of it, what you get is Nexus, right? And so tip of the hat for Hugh for, for building something throughout the bear market, blood, sweat, and tears to, to build something that he's passionate about, that he really understands, and then have it come to absolute success over the last few months as the need for insurance on DeFi has absolutely exploded. You know, this has become a, a, basically a trilogy with our DeFi builders, right? These are the bear market builders. So at one point during our conversation with Hugh, he said something that like surprised me. I, I, I didn't know, but they almost shut down in 2019. Like Hugh almost stopped working on Nexus Mutual mm-hmm. because... He and his team, he had, to, he had to do layoffs and it didn't seem like it was going to work out. Um, <laughs> I'm glad he didn't because now here we are in 2020 and we have a protocol with $230 million in insurance coverage in the DeFi market. So necessary. Glad he, he was, uh, I guess, he persevered through that with his team and kept on building and I think that's a that's a hallmark of the last three guests that we've had on the show. These DeFi builders, uh, they didn't quit. You know, they kept going. They had the vision even when no one believed in Ethereum, no one believed in DeFi. And I think that's what makes these projects really special. Um, I think nowadays with the the DeFi bull market and the crypto bull market starting to heat up again. We're, we're starting to see a lot of uh, fair, fair weather builders coming to the space, you know, maybe more of the tourist crowd. And we'll have to see how many of them stick around and stay, how many of them have the quality of these uh, bear market builders and who are able to stick it out and, and build something lasting, or are they just here for the gains? So really enjoyed the last uh, three episodes in in this series. It's been a lot of fun, and um, you know these are you, these are the protocols to pay attention to. There's also something unique here with Nexus Mutual that's different from our previous episodes with Synthetics and with Ave, right? So you know uh, Nexus and insurance needs DeFi or something like it to exist in order to have product market fit, right? And you know while Kane expressed you know his apprehensions and his tests of faith during the 2018 bear market and Stani from Ave said the same thing they didn't it didn't really hit me as hard as when Hugh said some of the things that he said in this podcast right like Hugh said, even went so far to pull out a personal loan to make sure that that Nexus Mutual would survive and the thing is like Nexus Mutual 
could have done exactly what it had needed to have done, like gone down the exact same phases of the roadmap, built the same exact things. But if it wasn't for other products like synthetics, like Aave, like Chainlink, like MakerDAO, like Compound, then synthetics wouldn't have anything to have insured, right? And so part of this uh, this ecosystem is composability. And not only did Nexus need to make it through the bear market, but other projects also needed to have made it through the bear market too, in order for Nexus to be able to insure them and grow into success later. And that's one of my favorite takeaways, I think, from this podcast is specifically the construction of Nexus and how its token model is linked to upside in the Nexus system in ways that tokens like the Lend token is not so incredibly codified to upside in Aave and how the SNX token isn't so explicitly linked to upside in synthetics. The NXM token has this one-to-one relationship with usage of Nexus and therefore Nexus needs other applications to ensure. So Nexus can almost like say, like tip of the hat to Hugh, but Nexus can also say thank you to Synthetics and, and Aave and, and all these other projects for also making it through the bear market so that it has other protocols to ensure. Absolutely. The ecosystem grows together uh, and it also, you know, dies together if, if that's the case. But right now it is growing. It is growing fast. And this is a new money Lego added to the stack, the insurance money Lego. Hey, David, one other thing. So listeners, you guys are hearing this on a Monday. So w- this episode is being published on, on that day. But we're also putting together a special bonus episode for you guys this week. So that will be published on the podcast on Thursday morning. David, what's our bonus episode? You want to tease that a little bit? Yam speaks. Yam speaks. The original vegetable. The original vegetable farm is finally coming out and talking. Okay. The the media embargo is over. I didn't know everyone who put the, the yam farm together, but I did know Will and I did know Dan. And so as soon as the yam farm came together, I messaged them and say, hey, like, we want you on the podcast. We got to get you guys on the podcast. And, uh, you know, in an abundance of caution and not wanting to appear as like the figureheads of the of the protocol, which totally fair take, uh, they said that there is a media embargo. But that embargo ends on Thursday. And so mark your calendars on Thursday on the podcast, on the Bankless YouTube, Yam Speaks. Wow. I want to hear, I want to hear what they say because uh, this week is the replanting week where Yam V3 is coming out. And uh, I'm pretty shocked that they put it together so quickly after all of the issues that uh, that it had in the in the first version. Uh, pretty phenomenal. I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say, hearing uh, the original vegetable token actually uh, speak for itself. <laughs> so. Yeah, really looking forward to this one. So stay tuned. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get right into the interview with Hugh of Nexus Mutual. But first, we're going to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors that make the Bankless Nation possible. One of the tools I've started to use recently is Zapper. For those of you that were part of the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by just opening up Blockfolio and refreshing it over and over and over again. And also, anytime you ever made a trade, you would have to go into Blockfolio and manually input that trade information to make sure that your portfolio that you think that you have matches what you actually have. With Zapper, you don't have to do any of that anymore because all you have to do with Zapper is input your Ethereum addresses and then Zapper will give you a really elegant report as to where all your money is. 
So there will never ever be any disconnect between the money that you think that you have and the money that Zapper reports to you. Zapper looks directly on chain and gives you a nice portfolio summary of all your assets and how many assets and your, all of your debt and all of your lending positions, all of your positions all at once. So there's no more editing your portfolio because Zapper just does it for you. One thing that I thought was really useful about Zappers was when I plugged my wallets in, I found that I had submitted liquidity to Uniswap forever ago. And without Zapper, I would have probably lost that forever because Zapper knows where your money is better than you do. It's also the gateway to investing your money into this ever expanding list of available DeFi platforms like Curve, Balancer, Uniswap, Yearn. In the bankless nation, there is this growing number of money Legos and keeping track of them all is just super overwhelming, which is why you could just go to Zapper and Zapper will, will solve the problem of there just being too many money Legos to choose from. So check them out at zapper.fi, enter your Ethereum addresses and check out your portfolio and see if there's anything that you missed. Bankless nation, do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world? Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest bearing savings account. Again, zero fees. And then you can spend that interest in the real world on a Visa card. So you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. Guys, this is magic. This is the closest thing to the Holy Grail crypto card and Monolith gives you all of it. You need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card. It's optimized for European listeners. They'll be coming to the US soon. And when you get that Visa card, the Monolith card, tweet about it when you do. I love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless Visa cards. It makes me realize that the revolution is here. Search Monolith in the App Store. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right into the episode with Hugh Carp of Nexus Mutual. Bankless Nation, we are so excited to have Hugh Carp. He is the founder of Nexus Mutual. He is the father of smart contract insurance. He's an actuary with over two decades of experience. Nexus Mutual, the protocol, has brought over $230 million in contract cover to the space. Hugh, how are you doing? Welcome to the nation. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here, guys. All right. Hey, first question. Is DeFi safe yet? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think we're at the early days. Um, we're getting there in the right direction, but um, definitely a long way to go, in my opinion. So like what percentage are we like, are we 1%? Are we 10%? Are we 30%? Yeah, maybe five. Um, I think, I think we're f starting to focus on the right stuff, like, um, but we definitely have a long way to go. Education, uh, you know, stuff that we're doing, stuff that other people are doing, more open information um, that people can easily access. Um, that's more readily available, that type of stuff. Um, we'll we get there. We'll get there. We want to understand a bit more about Nexus and how you are helping DeFi get there. But could we start with some background? Because I think you have a you know, fascinating background. We've had some other uh, crypto native DeFi founders on the podcast lately. This has been sort of a trilogy for us and, and uh, you're the conclusion, Hugh. But you're the only one that we've met and that we've had on that has a, a ton of real world, I guess, almost like traditional experience. Like you were uh, in the insurance industry, the traditional insurance industry as an actuary for 
almost two decades. Can you tell us about that and how you stumbled upon this whole DeFi crypto thing and decided to start something here? Yeah, so yeah, I've been working in traditional insurance for a while, um, 10 years in Australia, and then um, quite a bit of time in, in London and the UK. Um, so yeah, I think um, I've always been fascinated by ways of like doing things a bit differently and stuff. Um, I guess um, I stumbled I stumbled across Bitcoin like many other people did um, uh, quite, uh, quite a while ago. Um, and uh, I, it really fascinated me that you could do something where like I could send money to you and there was no one else in the middle and like I just could just do do that. Um, I didn't really know how it worked from a tech point of view, but I found it really fascinating. Um, and then and then after um, I put it down, I investigated for a while, but I put it down. Um, but then I heard about Ethereum a bit after it launched. Um, and that's kind of, I guess that's what really triggered it for me because if you can you know, write an if-then statement, then you can kind of write an insurance contract. And th- that was my area of expertise. And I was really fascinated by this, way of um coordinating people or a community together um like directly um because actually that's that's really what um insurance is all about um like if you go if you go back like millennia like um it's it's just about a group of people um coming together and sharing risk like you know you had like people um, like one of the um, the big examples, I guess, is Chinese river merchants. Like way back, um, they used to like share the load of um, of their goods um, in different boats. And so, if one of them um, capsized or whatever, they lost their load. Then they'd only lose part of their own um, cargo. And so, they were all kind of more resilient as a whole. And so, that's kind of like how insurance started: like a group of community coming together and sharing risk. And it's evolved from there and went through many iterations and things. But um, but it's and it's now transformed into a shareholder company predominantly, um, rather than the kind of mutual community um, aspect. And and I guess our real um, uh, goal or vision here is that you can really do it better um, if you can use that community approach. But now we can have had this new tech that can really scale that direct community peer to peer approach. Um, so that's kind of like at a very high level um, what we're trying to do. Want to get into some of the, just the history of insurance as as you were you know, going down that path, Hugh. But like, just one more, I guess, question on this. It, it's a curiosity point for me. So, what about crypto first drew you in? Was it some sort of a you know a hobby or an interest or a, you know a way that you were brought up? We talked to Kane from Synthetics, and he has sort of a a crypto anarchist type of background. We talked to Stani from Ave, and he was a tinker. Uh, you know, his brother uh, dabbled in, in Linux uh, when they were younger and, and growing up. So he came from a tech background. What about your background drew you immediately to Bitcoin, that first spark of interest, and then later Ethereum? I guess I've always been interested in tech stuff, though I haven't done, like I have done coding in the past, but I'm not, a, I'm not like a coder or a, a techie heavily. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm more kind of on the actuarial side of things, um, which is more like stats and economics type stuff. Um, I guess, I guess a couple of things. I've always been interested in tech kind of off to the side, but yeah, not a massive kind of tinkerer, I guess. The, I guess the aspect to me that perhaps sparked it more was the kind of philosophy and principles behind it. My, um, my dad actually, well, he, he's retired now, but he used to be, um, he worked in the insurance industry for a long time as well. Um, but he used to be, a, uh, one of the um, regulators of the Australian, um, insurance industry and, um, that perhaps sounds a bit odd, but 
Um, but the point is that it's always they've always got the the customer focus here and the the individual focus, um, making sure that it's done right by um, the, the people and protecting them. And, and so it's kind of like um, I kind of got a bit jaded by the insurance industry as such because um, it felt like we were just shifting big money around balance sheets rather than actually focusing on the end customer. And and here was a technology that you could actually like really just put in the people's hands. Um, and so I guess that's kind of where it's come from. So it's more from a um, philosophical point of view rather than a kind of really tech driven. So when did Ethereum come into the picture? Yeah, so um, I guess basically um, it was a, pr- pretty much a year after they launched, I guess early 2016. Um, <laughs> I guess the light bulb moment, I mean, I was kind of, I was interested in space, kind of dive back into the stuff there. But the light bulb moment for me was seeing the DAO be drained live um and and i thought oh hey here we go um this 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 needs we need to do something here we can't we can't just let that stuff happen um i mean you know hard fork or no hard fork whatever you know that's a different discussion but like if 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 people are going to adopt this thing we needed to address those types of issues a lot of people couldn't see past the DAO at the time though they thought that would be the fall of ethereum and that it would never work i guess you were able to see past to a uh, world where we can have lower risk smart contracts yeah i mean i guess i guess so i mean there was definitely a stage there when everyone thought oh it's you know it's not um not going too far from here but i mean i i still fundamentally thought that the tech was like doing something incredibly new that no one else had done before and so to me that had to um evolve and 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 progress from there so when you grew to understand ethereum and the concept of a smart contract did the light bulb immediately go off as with the marriage between smart contracts and insurance or how long did that take to to make that connection well um not too long because um, a lot of people were just always talking about insurance as like a very natural use case for, for blockchain, like from the really early days. Um, it's, you know, it's a financial product. Um, it's about bringing a bunch of people together. It's, it's effectively a DAO. So it like all of the stuff people were talking about um, were kind of, it, it fits very naturally. Um, so it didn't take me long and I, and to kind of work out that, you know, that there is something here I need to dive in and work out how to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I, st- I guess I started that process. So, Hugh, let's go into that a little bit more. Uh, why is it so obvious for people that insurance and smart contracts are just like this match made in heaven? Um, well, in my mind, it's basically this fact that insurance is, is all about risk sharing between people and creating a community that is more resilient as a whole because it can more able to take on risk or downside as a group than you can as an individual and and so if you have this technology that can coordinate people um then then you you kind of like can supercharge this whole thing and so to kind of make that work what you need to do is have um essentially you know a a pool of funds and a and an incentive mechanism to kind of make sure that people do the right thing with that pool of funds and and so um, it's, it's sort of very early, like you can coordinate a group of people and a pool of funds really easy. Like, you know, the kind of the DAO is like a good example of that potentially working really well. Um, and, and then if you can put that right incentive mechanism on the top with, you know, tokens or whatever it is, um, then that, that forms the, the genesis of the whole, of the whole thing. Um, obviously there's a whole bunch of details to work through and how do you make those mechanics work and the incentives aligned and all the rest of it. But fundamentally, if you can get those two things to work, then that's really what insurance is. 
So it seems to be that with Nexus and building insurance on, on quote unquote, on the blockchain that, you know, you're, you're not disrupting anything in the same way that like MakerDAO is perhaps disrupting central banks or, um, you know, Uniswap is disrupting centralized exchanges. It really seems to be that when you build something like insurance on using smart contracts, that you're just building this age old primitive on this new substrate. D- does that resonate with you? I mean, it does to a certain extent, but you can also do a whole lot more. Um, And I kind of think that puts it in the kind of disruptive category, really. Um, I mean, you can you can strip out massive layers of cost. I mean, one of the one of the key things here is that you can actually get a better um, outcome for the customers because you have you no longer need that shareholder based entity that has a potential conflict of interest. Um, and you have a much um, a reduced level of conflict between the members of the mutual because they're all the members and they can all be working together. There are always, will always be some level of conflict, but you don't have that natural just, are we going to pay this claim or not? Because, you know, that's a shareholder profit versus paying a claim. Um, you know, and th- that's largely handled by regulation right now, obviously. But um, we just think that there's a much better way. And if you can coordinate this on a community basis, you're going to have much more flexibility. So we definitely want to dive into Nexus and, and how it does some of the of the things you just mentioned. Uh, but I think it would be helpful um, both for our listeners and for, and for me is if we could get a quick history lesson of insurance and mutual funds. And I've listened to a few of your talks and you kind of give it a nice like account of how insurance came to be. So like to, to the best of your ability, can you kind of give us like the early, uh, early instances of, of how insurance came to be in this world? Yeah, sure. I'll just pick a few like different points and then we can, you know, that kind of tells a bit of a wider story. But um, yeah, so you kind of have these really like small community stuff to start with, you know, like ancient history type stuff where, you know, that those Chinese river merchants or um, a different community over here that would pull together. And, you know, if someone, um, one of the like workers died, then the, the rest of the family would get looked after because the elders had some um, funds or whatever to look after things. And, you know, it didn't necessarily start as monetary based but um but you know you you get food for them or whatever um and so that's kind of like it really started in that local community side of things then then you kind of move into like i guess a bit more advanced when you had um, a lot of it comes from shipping um and so first kind of like insurance contracts that are closer to modern day stuff um is when you had like um, loan contracts or something where you go, um, here's a merchant that's going to deliver a whole bunch of goods to the other side of the world. Um, and you've got some backers who will give them a loan um, to do that. And they would share in the profits, um, assuming it went well. But if it didn't um, and the ship was lost at sea or whatever, then they'd write off the loan. And so that's kind of an early form of insurance. And that kind of started with like, um, here, here are the shipping people, here are a few merchants that are um, got some more money and, you know, it kind of started at a very small community level. And then what tends to happen, it, get, it gets institutionalized. Um, and so you put like standard structures in place. Um, there's a there's a bigger group of financial backers that come in. Um, rules start getting set up and it becomes more standardized and you can, um, and a big market type happens. And that's kind of how like the shipping industry started. And, you know, that's kind of a lot of where insurance has really um, come from. Um so I guess the other thread going through all of this is that they generally have started um, new um, markets or new industries um, where insurance like is kind of needed generally starts with the community first. 
um, and so you you like the, the regular industry is not there or doesn't exist. So the people that need the cover just band together themselves to do it. Um, and so then and then it progresses into a more regular industry stuff. Um, and so that's kind of I, I see a lot of strong parallels with what we're doing now. Um, but the the interesting part is that how that shifts from the community based approach where it's all done by the community for the community. And if there's, you know, bigger losses than the community wears them, if there are if there are not as many losses, then the community benefits because, you know, that they get to share in um, what's left over. Um, and so then what's happened over time and and even if we kind of fast forward to um, earlier this, this century, um, the you, you end up with these mutuals that start as communities, but then what happens is they get to a point and they get to a scaling point where they, they struggle to grow because they can't necessarily grow outside their community base because often you will need capital to come in to make it grow further. Um, and so usually the community is not like, deep pocketed um, and so they, they kind of have they're limited in their growth and also you know conceptually if you've got one community over here and you they want to like share coverage and scale with a different community they have to actually trust each other to pay on the claims which can be a bit of a um, an issue and so so what tends to happen is these mutuals turn into um, shareholder based companies uh, doesn't happen all the time but it's happened a lot and um, and what that means is they demutualize, they get shareholder equity-based capital, and the shareholders then go to capital markets and raise bigger capital for equity, and then they grow and can serve more people. But they've now introduced a people into it that are kind of not necessarily there as part of the community. They're um, to help, um, you know, with aligned interests. They're, they're, they're the shareholders. Um, and so that's generally how things have worked. And so I guess our premise here is that um, because we can coordinate people using token um, incentives, that's much more scalable. And so you can coordinate people on a global basis to do this stuff um, really efficiently. And therefore, you don't actually need to inject equity capital at any point. You can scale a mutual really, really large and the members will be the ones that benefit. And so it's really the community-owned cooperative type of approach to, to insurance. And so that that's kind of the history and the um, I guess our, our view on um, how we think the blockchain can really kind of disrupt the insurance world. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that friction between like a shareholder based model and the average individual who's trying to get a payout from, you know, their their house burning down. Talk about talk about that discrepancy. Yeah, I mean, to, by and large, it works fine. I have to say, like, if, you're, if you're in if you're in a developed nation with a reliable legal system and a good regulator, then this all works fine. All of the kind of bad, there's always going to be quirks and stories around the edges. And that's always happens. But by and large, it works fine. The but it only works fine because you have legal and regulatory barriers in um, in, in place, and that's costly and and in, inefficient. So th there's definitely that conflict of interest, but but by and large the customer is looked after because there are protections in place, um, and so and so I think that that's important. But what we're saying is we can do the same thing in a different way, in a much cheaper way, without that risk. Um, and so um, if we get those token. Um, incentives right that um, that means we can achieve the same kind of um, protections but on a global basis and also for people that don't necessarily live in a um, jurisdiction where you have that reliable legal and regulatory framework 
Hugh, you mentioned earlier that there's just a lot of uh, inefficiencies in the current state of the insurance and, and mutual markets. Can you kind of elaborate on that as well? Yeah, sure. So I think um, probably the easiest way to explain this is if you pay $100 in premium, then you expect to get basically 60, 65, maybe 70% back um, in claims and the rest gets lost in expenses and profit and all the other costs in, in there. Um, and so that's kind of the, um, the, the, the kind of tax in the system. So we're um, talking like 20 to 30% overhead-ish for the industry. Oh, right? it's, more, it's more, like, more like 30 to 40, but yeah. Wow. Um, so it's big, um, chunky numbers. Um, and I mean, you know, that some of that, you know, kind of, it's hard to get away from, but, um, but that, that's a big, that's a big, um, target to aim at. Um, and you know, there, there are obviously a whole bunch of reasons for it, but, um, but that's, it's not very efficient and there's lots of paper based and stuff like that. So I, I just want to, you know, maybe, uh, zoom out for a minute and, and talk uh, about risk and insurance, right? So, um, I, I just started reading, have you read this book here? It's called Against the Gods by Peter Bernstein. Um, no, I haven't actually. I mean, it's, on, it's been on my list for a while. But yeah. It is fascinating. So it is the story of, of, of some of those ship merchants who basically created some mathematical models and kind of early probability and statistics and actuarial, you know, kind of tables to, um, to, you know, kind of science the, the risk out of, uh, out of markets, right? So out of, you know, the, uh, first the shipping market and then others. Uh, and it it talks about how um, getting risk, quantifying risk, and actually creating markets around risk essentially is a scalability technology. And I was thinking about that with uh, the context of, of DeFi, right? So DeFi can only grow so large, um, you know, b- before it's like essentially hindered by lack of insurance. Because there's plenty of people who just are going to be unwilling institutions, for example, um, other, you know, traditional banks, they're going to be unwilling to get into DeFi if it doesn't have a, an insurance, if, if the risks cannot be assessed. Can you talk about that from a macro perspective? I mean, do you see basically insurance and the ability to measure risk and to quantify that with some market price as a scalability limiter to DeFi? Yeah, definitely. Um, the the simple one is there are a whole bunch of um, institutions that have a checklist about what they need, what needs to happen before they get involved, and insurance is just one of them. Um, at really high level, like um, insurance is actually just fundamental financial infrastructure for economies, and you the the con- economies with uh, with the highest GDP growth and stuff like that tend to be the ones with a meaningful um, or well-developed insurance industry. It's just, that's just how things work. Like if, if you want to develop anything or do anything new or take risks, um, then it, that happens much more often when there's a reliable um, risk management tools in place and reliable insurance in place. You know, if you want to build a railway, launch a rocket, whatever, like no, no one's going to let you launch a rocket unless you've got insurance in place. Like, um, you know, things can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, you know, the, this this stuff, you know, it may be boring and sitting all in the background, but it's just has, it just has to be there to enable um, the growth of an economy. Um, and so, you know, so the, our view is that Ethereum is creating this new parallel financial economy to start, but, you know, obviously, hopefully much, much more than that. And, and insurance should be a, a key part of it. Well, and just to kind of quantify that, um, it it feels like uh, the value locked in DeFi can't 
get beyond a certain amount without insurance. Like insurance is a necessary part of scaling the system. It's a necessary part of, of DeFi essentially growing up. So right now, I don't know how much we have locked in DeFi, like something like, uh, is it 8 billion or so? Yeah, eight, eight or nine. Eight or nine billion. And Nexus now has about 230 million in cover, right? Uh, and a year ago at this time, there was like no insurance for smart contracts, maybe a little bit. I don't know what you guys were working on, but it, it felt like there was almost nothing. But in order to get to uh, 100, like we, we talked to Vance uh, from Framework a couple episodes ago, and you know he predicted possibly 500 billion locked in DeFi um, close to the end of this cycle. Uh, and we're just not going to get there unless we have insurance in the billions of dollars. It's it's just not going to come. So this is this is all DeFi growing up, and we've kind of seen a little bit on the crypto bank side. And we we tend to refer to exchanges as kind of crypto banks because they're they're expanding their functionality beyond trading to other banking type features. But some of the crypto banks have started to get some pretty robust traditional insurance for their uh, multi sig. Uh, custodial wallets and solutions. And it seems like that is the crypto banks growing up. Can you talk about that for, for just a minute? Like, so how, uh, where are the crypto banks going to get their insurance? You know, Gemini rolled something out. Coinbase has had insurance for a number of years. Are they going to just the traditional brokers and, and how are the traditional brokers kind of assessing the risk for, um, you know, multi-sigs and, and custodial wallets and vaults in crypto banks today? Yeah, they're mostly going to the, I mean, they're going to the, the traditional brokers through Lloyd's or um, through, through other providers, et cetera. Um, the, the, the traditional insurers are, you know, stepping their toes in in various places, mainly with, really, they're kind of like standard crime policies that are actually just applied to um essentially private keys or custodial assets. Um, and, so, and so really that's not too much of a stretch for them from a product point of view. Um, they obviously have to do um, a bit more analysis and understand it a bit better, but um, but that's kind of where they're going. Um, in terms of the capacity that's currently offered, um, I haven't caught up with the brokers I know recently, but um, it's always been a bit of a challenge. And for example, Lloyd's put, the, put a crackdown on things recently saying, you know, no more cryptocurrency risk in any of the syndicates um but um so there is some capacity but it's not at the billions of scale why did they do that by the way why does a lloyd's make a decision uh you know no more cover we're not providing anymore is that just a risk management thing yeah it's a risk it's a risk management thing um i also know that some there are some like you know if you if if you wanted a hundred million line of custody cover, which is a relatively small line in itself in the insurance world, um, then it's actually been brokered like between 10 different um, providers. And that's like just unheard of because usually people, any decent provider would go, oh yeah, happy hundred million. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, that, that, to just, that's just to give you a bit of a flavor for how or where they, they are thinking that, that they will come and eventually, but they need to understand better. And there's a long... Um, there's a long kind of education gap there and the market's not quite big enough for them to be interested right now, but you know, that, that will change over time. So they are, it, it sounds like, would you say like they are miles away from doing anything with DeFi and smart contract insurance. If they're just like barely comfortable insuring exchanges, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my view. I mean, they will they get there eventually, but, um, but that, probably five years, maybe. Um, and, and actually, I think they're more likely to enter 
um, with us. Um, like what, what you tend to do as a um, as a bigger capital provider in the insurance world is like you find an expert in that particular thing and then you back them. They take the first levels of risk and you can help um, back it up um, and give them more capital to really scale. And so that that's a potential option for us in the future. So do you think they're maybe a couple years away from starting to do that or um, is it close yeah. to you think this cycle? Does it happen this cycle? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Like it, it, it has, it's going to have to be the right partner and all the rest of it. But, you know, and they're going to want a few years of claims experience to, before they start backing stuff. So, you know, we've probably got a little bit yet. So, Hugh, you, you said that, you know, one of the prerequisites for any like significant investment getting into an in- industry is, is if it has insurance or not. And do you think that people that, that think in that way, when they look at Nexus, do you think that Nexus counts? Like, cause it's kind of inside of the industry that perhaps they were looking for somebody outside of the industry to ensure. Do you think, do you think Nexus would check that box in their mind? I know it checks the box for some people. I know it doesn't check the box for other people. Um, so yeah, it, it depends on the, the point of view. Um, we actually, <laughs> I was talking to a few people recently. Um, like there's obviously there's a couple of Swiss foundations around that manage crypto assets for um, projects. Um, and that they have some criteria um, about like investing and taking, not taking risk with the funds. Um, and so, but a couple of them have got advice that if you put money in say compound or whatever, and you also get cover with Nexus, that puts it at an okay level from a risk point of view. Um, but if, if without the Nexus coverage, it wouldn't be. So, you know, that's just one specific example about um, how we can help get over some um, regulatory um, restrictions and stuff. Well, just to make that super tangible, right? So when you put your money, and when any of us put our money in a bank, let's say a bank in the US, for example, under $250,000, there's something called FDIC insurance, which means the government is essentially backing up your savings account. Right. So if the bank goes insolvent for whatever reason, if there's a run on the the bank, they run out of money, uh, again, fractional reserve system, of course, then the government will ensure that you get your money up to a certain amount. DeFi, if you inject uh, funds into Compound, which is essentially a, a DeFi, a bankless savings account, if you will, you don't have FDIC insurance natively, right? So if something happens to the compound smart contract, say there's a hack, you are out of luck. The government is not going to reach in and uh, refund you. And and that's why something like insurance helps DeFi scale. Because when you wrap Nexus as part of a compound um, savings account, essentially, then you do have some insurance that it is protected against a smart contract hack uh, that we've seen many times in this space. So like that just kind of makes it real. What you're adding is not just a savings account, but this Nexus Primitive adds uh, insurance, almost like an FDIC type insurance to the protocols as well. Is that is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, it's definitely how, how I see it. Um, on a conceptual basis, here's where I get my legal stuff on. But um, like legally, we aren't insurance. We provide discretionary cover, um, which means like it, the the cover payouts are kind of at the discretion of the the other members of the mutual via voting, etc. Um, but that, but conceptually, that's that's the idea. That's what we're trying to do. You know, compounds not a bank. They act like a bank. We're not an insurance company. We act kind of like an insurance company, I guess. Um, and so that's um, but that's conceptually what we're trying to do you know um ideally you know you hopefully have and we get to the point where you get like a um a badge or a token that kind of yeah represents um oh here's your 
here's your argent wallet and it's it's kind of it's covered by nexus and that's kind of like here's your bank account with an fdic insurance you know that type of thing and so just to talk about um you you wrote an article for bankless uh, i think almost a year ago now where you talked about kind of three categories of risk right um and it it's important to i guess remind folks that uh, something like nexus doesn't cover all three categories of risk can you talk about those categories of risk and what Nexus would cover and what it doesn't cover? Yeah, sure. So um, I can't, yeah, put them in three categories. Basically, technical risk of the smart contracts failing. That's what Nexus covers. So that's basically the Solidity code. If there's a bug in it, you know, it, the code was designed to do something. It clearly does something different. Someone could drain the funds or freeze them or whatever. That's that's basically what we cover. Um, the I guess the other two broader categories are um, basically anything outside the smart contracts, um, so things like a, like a governance attack or like an Oracle failure, um, stuff like that. Um, that's, that's not covered right now. Um, and I guess the third category is like an economic incentive failure. So, you know, there might be a system that's relying on economic incentives to work so that, um, the whole system works like you know, it, make a DAO could be an example, like the die peg may fail, not because the smart contracts fail, but because the economic incentive system around that doesn't quite hold it. Right. Um, and so we don't cover. Um, stuff outside the smart contracts or those economic incentive failures. Um, right now, that's we, we, we basically launched something simple so that um, we could get it out there, test it out and all the rest of it. But we definitely have plans to kind of broaden the coverage and provide more complete cover. And the bulk of DeFi failures so far, have they been more in the smart, in, in terms of total value lost amount, have they been more in the, the you know smart contract technical hack camp or have they been in the, the other categories as well? Um, I think... The, probably the one bigger one that was in the other category, they've mostly been in a smart contract technical failure in my mind. Um, so, but the other one that hasn't been, has been a bit outside was the MakerDAO, like Black Thursday stuff where the, the keepers didn't keep up with the um, auctioning process and, and vaults got liquidated below market value and stuff. So um, that, that, that one um, was a key example, but we haven't, um, I guess the, I guess there's always a few times when someone just, drains the funds or exit scams and stuff um like i guess that's kind of classified as a governance failure um so yeah i I think majority has been smart contract technical risks but there are other things to consider all right so we've been teasing the listeners with a bunch of things circling around the topic of nexus mutual itself and the nxm token so let's go ahead and dive right in hugh what was the first step towards building nexus (laughs) <laughs> ironically um legal and regulatory research <laughs> um we'll we'll give you for that one is yeah. it basically how do we do this in a way that just you know doesn't piss off the regulators how do we do this without getting shut down day one okay <laughs> basically you know um like i i guess i was coming at it from one point of view like you, you kind of have two options you either kind of um, do okay from a do it fine from a regulatory point of view, or you go full dark mode and just release it right and go full decentralized from day one. Yeah, um, anonymous founder, you are Satoshi, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just I just knew from like immediately that this thing would require iteration and updating, and you could never get it anywhere near perfect from day one. Um, and that just wasn't going to be a possibility. So to me, I went the other direction. Um, and so once we kind of sorted out a, um, a, a route to market, then it was all a kind of economic design and, and stuff like that um, before we started coding. 
And then, and where did this, uh, when did Nexus start to become uh, built? When did, when did uh, work actually start to, to happen? Um, we started, we started like putting together proof of concept um, late 2017. Um, then we kind of raised the seed around early 2018 and, um, and then launched the protocol May, into May 2019. So, um, so that's basically the, the, the roadmap. Were you affected by like the the doldrums of the bear market, the brutal bear market in 2018, 2019, where everyone thought, you know, Ethereum is dead, DeFi is nothing going is not going to be much, and there was kind of just rampant Bitcoin maximalism? Did you uh, fall prey to some of that? Uh, definitely. So yeah, we went through some very tough times. Um, we you know had to let go of half the team, um, cut down the runway. Um, we'll cut down the cost space a lot so we had more runway um, and then basically crawl over the line we, we, we were very very close to shutting down um, you know going back to all of our initial um, seed investors saying you know can you provide a little bit extra didn't quite go anywhere um, then then a, um, a friend or a, a, I guess a Ethereum OG decided to, to help us out and give us a little bit of extra money and combined with a chunky loan for myself um we managed to kind of get it over the line and get it to launch um and then and then you know i guess cockroach our way out of it um and um i guess you know things are looking pretty um pretty good now we've got a protocol with lots of people using it and stuff but um i guess early 2019 um yeah there's pretty tough times going on oh my god wow. so what kept you going well i th- think i found out that i'm just super stubborn um <laughs> it's a good time to find that out the cockroach yeah yeah, yeah. i think I, I got to the point that i felt i just felt we were cl- so close and i'd just be really disappointed if we didn't get to launch like if we got to launch and it just didn't work i'd be like oh, okay i have given it a shot nobody wanted to use it didn't work yeah. product whatever but i'd just be so disappointed that we just didn't quite get there to give it a shot and so um yeah just managed to get over the line just really and um and and we're here we're here today still so that's that's great well you are here so like can you tell us about the 2020 experience because that's been a little bit different than 2019 hasn't it yeah 2020 is like um i don't know like five years condensed into five five <laughs> weeks or something i, I don't know um like we were like, yeah. just give us some metrics so in terms of contract cover where do you start the year actually i have it up NexusTracker.io. If got folks want to see it, I've got the tracker. I don't know who built this, but okay. So end of 2019, you had uh, 1.15 million in cover, right? So that's the the amount that um, essentially of smart contracts that you're able to insure through the Nexus, Nexus protocol. And now here we are. And I'm looking at it, and as of right now, there is 233 million dollars. That is, you have more ETH locked in Nexus than the Ethereum Foundation, I think, or it's pretty close, <laughs> has eaten. And all of that has happened this year. That's like, you know, my God, that's, you uh, know. All of, it, all of it's happened since July, basically. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's it's been a massive three months for us. Um, like, yeah, we, we had like, um, in, in terms of our capital pool, we were sitting around 5 million for quite a while. Um, we're now up at roughly 80 i think 70 70 80 depends what ether's doing right now um and and so yeah it's um yeah we've had massive growth over the past little while basically um the big kickoff has been yield farming um it makes a lot of sense when you're earning ridiculous returns to just 
take uh, take out some cover on Nexus and reduce that return a bit, but be in a much better position from a risk reward point of view. Um, and so that that's kind of really kicked things off. Um, and and lately, the last few days have been um, safe mining, which is a, a, just another level of um, craziness. But um, but that's um, that's what's been going on recently. We're, we're definitely going to get there, uh, but let's actually talk about how Nexus is constructed. So what are the what are the core primitives that power the Nexus mutual system? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, really high level, you've got one capital pool. It's basically a pool of ETH right now. Um, and then you have the token um, NXM that kind of sits over the top as an incentive layer to make sure that people do the right things. We, we pay out the claims that are genuine. We decline the claims that are not. Um, we we do the right things from a, um, a governance point of view. We back the right risks with the right pricing, etc. And so, so essentially, what what we have is this one, one pool that all of the cover prices go into and all the claims go out of. Um, and then, um, and people can actually contribute ether to the pool and get the token in return and do the reverse as well, because you can then burn the token to take ETH out. So there's basically like only a few like money in money out type inputs here into the one capital pool, but then you've got the token, which kind of allows you to do the different actions. Um, and so the, the first one, I guess, um, the most obvious one is actually buying cover. So um, you actually kind of burn the token to buy cover. Um, you actually don't see that in the background. You can just purchase directly for, with Diary, then it just does the conversion in the background for you. Um, so that's kind of use case one. And then um, there are there are three more main functions. Um, the next major one is what we call risk assessment, where you kind of stake NXM tokens against risks that you think are good. So like um, you might want to back Uniswap or Compound or Aave or whatever. Um, and then you earn a share of the, the cover price that, that, um, that gets purchased on that um, protocol. And, um, and so there's, that's, that's a key incentive me- mechanism there. And then there's the uh, claims assessment, which you, you stake some NXM again for voting power. Um, in the claims assessment to um, approve or deny claims. And then there's usual governance, um, update parameters, upgrade system, et cetera, stuff as well. So those are kind of the, the four things that you can do. So the NXM token and how it comes into existence is is interesting because it's very much unlike any of the other DeFi protocols and, and their token, right? And so, you know, SNX is the collateral for synthetics. And, you know, uh, the Lend token is the future governance token over over Aave with potential cash flows that we all kind of assume baked is baked in. But the NXM token is different because it has its much this much more codified relationship between the growth of Nexus Mutual and the demand for insurance and the value of the NXM token. And that comes from the bonding curve. And and so talk about the bonding curve and how that incentivizes ether deposits and nxm creation and and also how the shape of the bonding curve has changed over time yeah sure so um i guess what the whole purpose of the the bonding curve is um is it's a way to manage capital the mutual so so what we want um and what you kind of need is you basically need enough capital in the pool so that you've got enough money to pay claims but you don't want too much because that's inefficient um and so you kind of want to get capital in there to back the covers that you've got. And then when you write more and more business, you want more capital so that you can grow. 
Um, but you don't want to be sitting on hundreds of millions of capital that you're not using because that doesn't make any sense. Um, and so the whole bonding curve is specifically designed around capital efficiency and making sure that you've got the right level of capital to back the covers that you've got. So say the main, one of the main, there's, there's kind of two main elements to the, to the bonding curve. The first is kind of, it's what we call the MCR percentage or minimum capital ratio percentage. It's basically like a solvency margin. So it, it's more or less the funds that the mutual has divided by the funds that it needs to back the policies that it's got. Um, and so when we've got excess funds, the price um, starts going quite high quite quickly. It's got an exponential factor on, on that. Um, and when we need more funds, then the, the price comes down. So, you know, if we have a few large claims, for example, we'll, um, our funds level will, will reduce, our MCR percentage will reduce, and that will lower the token price. And so, therefore, encourage more people to recapitalize the mutual. And correspondingly, you know, if we end up um, writing lots of business and... Um, and that kind of you know leaves surplus in the pool and we've got too much surplus and too much capital, then the token price will rise until people um, cash out NXM for, for ETH. So, um, so it kind of balances things. Um, that's kind of the, 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 um, the one, one metric. The, the longer term metric, um, which is the second metric, is really just the amount of um, capital we need. And, and so basically this means that over time as the mutual grows, like assume the funding level position is flat over time, um, the solvency ratio is flat, um, then you, the, the token price is basically driven by how much cover the mutual writes. And, and therefore, um, it's really strongly linked to adoption. And, and the point here was really to link the, the token price um, and use it as a core function for a call, uh, sorry, it's something that the mutual needs to operate, and that's it needs the right capital at the right point in time, and that's entirely what it, what the the token is for. Okay, so it's issued along a bonding curve, but there's actually two curves to be paying attention to, right? There is the the um, the curve of the amount of capital that is needed to fulfill all outstanding covers if everything in DeFi blows up like all at once. And Nexus Mutual has this curve that establishes like the minimum amount of capital that is required so that it can pay out every single claim ever. And then there is a, another curve that I, I believe is 30%, like tracks that tracks that same first initial curve, but is 30% higher. That is that 30% buffer that, and is it, A, is that correct? And, and then B also, is that, is it correct to call that the premium? Um. So I guess not, no one a few counts, but um, so the, the minimum capital requirement, the whole point of insurance actually is to heavily under collateralize, like fractional reserve banking, to be honest. Um, oh. Because so as you can see at the moment, we've written 230 million of cover, but we have 73 million of capital. So if everything claimed at once, we wouldn't be able to pay. Um, and the whole, that's, uh, that's actually the whole point of insurance because you can't, mm cover extreme events with mm. rel relatively low cover costs or premiums um, efficiently um, with um, with a fully collateralized model, so one for one, right? So, so we have this model, which is ba basically how insurance companies work in the real world and kind of goes, you've got these risks, they're diversified, they're not all going to blow up at once, but we've got to make sure that we've got enough that if you quite a few of them blow up, you've got it, you've got it covered. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the model that, that we're operating under. Um, so the bonding curve is actually, I mean, 
it's three dimensional if you want to call it that way. Um, there are there, you know there's the the solvency ratio and then there's the the other demand to it. So um, the other element to it, the longer term. So um, but it, it's really just one curve. I don't know if you want to call a three dimensional curve mm. one curve one curve or a lot, but um, that's kind of how it works. So the reason why I think this is so elegant is because well, a I just love bonding curves. They're they're one of the coolest pieces of DeFi infrastructure. Uh, but it's it's a dual purpose curve in the sense that like if you want to become a member of the mutual, right? Like you purchase NXM by depositing Ether into the curve, and then that increases the value of the NXM token, kind of in the same way that Uniswap work, works, right? Like if you per, if you uh, purchase Ether with your Dai in the Uniswap Dai pool, the price of Ether goes up, right? And and the NXM on the bonding curve does the same thing with more Ether deposited into uh, into the pool. But you can uh, th then there's like a fork in the road as to like who you want to become. Do you want to be someone who uh, backstops uh, the Nexus Mutual by adding capital to the pool, and then if you if you do, you keep the NXM token, or you can therefore instead become a person that purchases cover, and instead of receiving the NXM token, you burn the NXM token, and that burning event is the purchasing of cover, right? And so. Both, both uh, participants put Ether into the pool. One keeps the NXM token, one burns the NXM token, and the one that is burning the NXM token is purchasing cover for some contract somewhere. And the burning of the NXM token means that there's more Ether in the quote-unquote treasury, right? More in the curve, and there's less NXM tokens. And so the remaining NXM tokens for any of the individuals that just want to be a part of the mutual their NXM token has a claim on a greater share of the ether in the in the treasury, right? In the in the mutual, is, is yeah. all of that correct? Yeah, exactly correct. Yeah, I ha I have a question about. So, um, I think most bankless listeners are more familiar with bonding curves in something like an automated market maker, which we've talked mm -hmm. about many times before. Uh, see our episode with Hazib. We'll include in the show notes. Um, this is different right here. Like, you know, you did you create your own custom bonding curve or was this inspired by a Uniswap or some other automated market maker? Um, yeah, no, we, we created our own bonding curve. Um, we, we actually, um, we were developing this stuff before Uniswap existed, um, but we just had to do a lot more testing because it's a bit more complicated than mm -hmm. um, than the, the Uniswap curve. Um, it, we we designed it like specifically for what we were doing. It's a specific use case. Like it's not as generalizable as um, as, as Uniswap is for you know you can use it in a, a few different scenarios, etc. Um, but the yeah, that, that I mean, it was really developed for a specific purpose. And we, we did a lot of like simulation testing and stuff on this thing because I guess it was relatively new. And this means basically because there's a bonding curve present, um, it's not like if somebody wants to purchase NXM, I guess, you know, they, they can purchase it uh, from the bonding curve itself. So they're not like purchasing it from from Nexus Mutual, some entity or something else. Mm -hmm. Of course, they can also purchase it on the secondary market, but they can always buy and sell tokens directly to the bonding curve. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. The Uniswap bonding curve is just like a straight curve, right? Just a, it's, there's super uniform. It doesn't have any, any uh, other, it's like one single curve, but the Nexus mutual curve is different, right? It's more custom fit to your guys' use cases. And earlier you said that like, as there's more and more capital, in the curve, the, the curve goes exponential really, really fast. Why, why is there a disincentive 
to add more capital to the Nexus Mutual pool? Um, well, we just want, we want to make sure we've got enough capital, but not too much, basically. Why, um, yeah, why is too much bad? Wouldn't you want more? Um, well, it's kind of like, not necessarily, because what, what we do, um, perhaps there's a few subtleties to it, perhaps. Um, so this this concept of like, um, if there, there is one capital pool, but if we kind of like segregate it into two sections, um, and there's kind of like the reserves, um, which is what we call our minimum capital requirement. And then there's the buffer over the reserves. And so what we want to make sure is that we've got enough reserves and we only write cover up to our kind of reserve level. So make sure that um, like we, we'd never allow co cover on any particular protocol to be more than 20% of our kind of reserves. Mm -hmm. um, so that if there is an issue, um, we, we're confident we can pay. Because basically if, the, if people start taking money out um, and they can't take money out below our reserve level, it's locked. Um, so that's kind of like, there's a free buffer which you can buy in and out of as long as you're above the 100% level, um, but you can't do it that below the 100% level. Um, and so what we want to make sure is you can, you can do your buying and selling as much as you want, but we have to have enough money to pay those claims. And that happens over time. It doesn't happen just now. Um, and so that's kind of what we're making sure. And so what we do is where we have excess capital, um, like for example, what we do right now is when there's, um, well, up until actually two days ago, but um, what we've been doing is when there's excess capital is in our solvency ratios over 130%, we, we ratchet up the reserves a little bit. So we just kind of arbitrarily shift some of the buffer into reserves. And that allows us to write more business on, on each protocol. Um, and so one of the interesting problems we've been having recently, um, you know, good problems to have, I guess, um, is there's lots and lots of demand, but we have to be able to kind of scale our reserves up to, to meet, meet that demand. And so it's, um, you know, we have to do that in a good way, because if we did it too fast, then we just absolutely crash the token price. Um, and that's obviously not what we want to do. So we want to do it on a gradual, um, steady basis, which is definitely challenging in the very fast moving DeFi space. So Hugh, uh, you own, is, an individual comes and they purchase NXM because they want to be a part of the mutual and they want to access the upside of people paying cover, right? And so you express that interest by purchasing NXM. But there's one more function, which is that you can stake NXM to a particular contract. Uh, can, you, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> so you can, what you can do is really take an enhanced risk reward um, position um, by staking on specific contracts. And so when you do this, then you earn a specific amount of the cover price that gets um, per, that gets paid when someone purchases cover on that. So, for example, you might stake on yeah, Compound or Uniswap or Maker or whatever. Um, and when someone purchases on, on Compound, or, then you get a specific share of the cover price. Um, the, there is obviously a downside to that. Um, in the fact that it's enhanced reward, but there's also an enhanced um, potential punishment. If there is a claim, then your NXM can get slashed um, proportionally to the um, the claim amount versus the the stake that's there. Um, so it's, it's, there's definitely more risk involved, and so um, this is this is really kind of using prediction market like techniques to to price um, cover. So so the the mechanic here is basically if there's more staking, there's lower price and more capacity on that particular protocol is um, is provided. And when I mean capacity, I mean more people can buy cover. Um, and so th those with more stakers gives you a yeah, better price and more capacity. And um, 
and that's kind of a it's important to kind of incentivize them backing the right protocols because you know we don't want to provide cover on um, some random new protocol that hasn't been audited that's potentially got a um, zero day bug etc that um, people have planted for example so we have to make sure that there's um, there's a way to to select good risks so this acts as almost like a, a kind of a skin in the game type function right so it's it almost acts, acts as a, um, a risk assessment so people who are staking to something like maker um, they might be willing to to stake more to maker because they you know it's been formally verified it's been in action for a while it you know already houses billions of dollars you know lindy effect is 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 going strong whereas some new protocol um you know that's going people are going to uh, be <laughs> unwilling uh, to to stake to it and and risk uh their portion so does this essentially act as a whole kind of risk assessment framework for individual uh, DeFi protocols and, and contracts? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it does. Um, so you can, you know, assuming we, you know, get, get more scale and, um, and, and keep, keep growing and um, get um, more kind of, you know, a bit more experience on this stuff, you should be able to use the price on Nexus as a one indicator of the risk of a, of a protocol failing. And that means as a staker, you have to know what you're doing. You can't just blindly just park your funds in one contract versus another without having some understanding of it. It almost makes you kind of an assessor, a risk uh, assessor in some way. Is that sort of who you're looking for in terms of the community members? Yeah, exactly. It's an expert function. It's a knowledge-based staking function. Um, you know, that's ideally who we want. We want the experts doing this stuff um, because that's where we're going to get the most value out of it. So you said this this is a prediction market type model, uh, and and one of the core features of a prediction market is that people with privileged information or just are better equipped to analyze something are going to sway the market using their own capital at stake to uh, express a certain opinion about the future of something, right? And so, people that have uh, more uh, more privileged information about whether a contract is risky or not or at risk at all can stake their NXM in an expression that uh, this particular contract is safe. And the reward for that is they get an outsized share of the cover being paid to that particular uh, 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 contract. And, and But also, it, some, some of that cover also goes back into the treasury to repay all of the... Um, all of the NXM holders, their their share, but it's the people that are staking on that particular contract that get that outsized return first, right? Just a, a nice little reward for that extra risk. Uh, let, let, I want to go into that that extra risk just a little bit more. How, how does you said that um, if that contract gets uh, you know exploited or bugged or whatever, and there is NXM staked to that contract, uh, you said that gets slashed. How does how does that uh, um, Maybe punish isn't isn't the right word, but how how does that cost the stakers uh, before the rest of the mutual? Um, so so when a claim is paid, the the actual claim payment gets paid out from the from the mutual fund, so like ether or die, depending on what the cover was purchased in, and so that's a direct negative on the treasury. Um, the in addition to that, the uh, uh, equal value of NXM. Um, that is staked in that contract is also burned, um, and that's proportionally shared amongst the stakers. So if there's if there's if there's um, a lot more NXM than the claims paid, then it's a partial burn. If it's the other way around, then then all the NXM would be burned. Um, so it's kind of like an offset. So you the 
you definitely still pay the actual funds out. So we kind of have like hard capital, which is like Ether and DAI, um, used to, to pay the, the claims. And then we've got the incentive layer on top. So make sure you stake on the right stuff, which is the NXM. And so um, after a claim payment, the treasury has gone down and the number of NXM has also gone, gone down. Okay, so the, the treasury that you keep talking about, Hugh, so there, there is um, about 230 active cover Right, but the treasury is smaller than that. Um, the treasury is about seventy-three. That's just how seventy-three million or so. I think you said earlier, which is just how kind of insurance works, right? Um, uh, that seventy-three million. Would you would you call that float? And, and the yeah. reason I ask is because you know uh, pe- people like Warren Buffett, of course, have famously been in insurance business for uh, for decades, and that's kind of where they make their money, right? They they take. All of those insurance premiums, essentially, that becomes the float, that becomes their treasury, and they go and they reinvest it. And Buffett famously reinvested that in uh, bull run stock market for the past, you know, 40, 50 years or so. Um, is that is that treasury float for Nexus? And what what do you do with it? Do you do you make your money on float in any way? Um, so yes, it's a float, and yes, we will use it, but we aren't currently. Um, so, um, that's going to be a big part of Nexus in the future. That's for sure. Um, the, the, we have to, we have to kind of make a few enhancements to the protocol to make that happen. Um, they're, they're on the roadmap. Um, the other aspect that we have to be a bit careful of is if, for example, we put money in say compound and we're also covering compound and compound goes down, then we lose assets and liability and have to pay claims at the same time. So, you know, we just have to be careful about the risk accumulation. One, one thing that could be that we're, um, you know, obviously very excited about is like ETH 2.0 launching and being able to earn some sort of um, return on the ETH we're holding um, by staking, because that could be potentially uncorrelated to the risks that we're riding. Um, and so that um, that could be a really good thing for um, to um, put the, some of the float to work in. And that would flow back to the, to the treasury, to all mutual members, and it just um, helps the mutual members directly. So you don't want to play a hedge fund manager with that float, of course, right? But if you did put that uh, 635,000 ETH in something like uh, staking, for instance, we, we, we've, uh, part of Bankless, we've kind of talked about that as being almost the risk-free rate of, of ETH in a way. Not to say there's no risk, but to say it's it's almost kind of like um, like T-bills or, or uh, treasuries in, in the US government, where that interest rate that you receive as part of a T-bill is kind of the risk-free rate of, um, of capital. For that market, is that sort of how you see ETH with staking? Is that why it's kind of a, a safe, a relatively safe place to put some of that float to work? Yeah, exactly right. We want to um, we want to make sure that we have the funds available for for paying claims. So you want to um, you know you can invest some of the float in more riskier stuff, but you don't want to invest the majority of it in riskier stuff. Um, so we need to work out what we do with that majority. Um, and something like the two point staking is is perfect. And that float, the uh, interest received on that float, whether it's you know three percent or whether it's eight percent or whatever it ends up being, that would flow back to the mutual holders. So holders of NXM, the asset, is that correct? Yeah, exactly right. So basically, um, as as you know, you've got that treasury pool, and you've got um, money coming in for covers, money going out for claims, money coming in for people who put um, ETH in and going out for the other way. You also have the float. Um, the investment returns, and so to the extent that um, to the extent you're in this stable environment where um, you're just writing business, same amount of business going on and off, 
then the surplus that's generated from the cover purchases plus the investment earnings on the float just accrue directly to the treasury. And then that starts um, pushing the token price up on the bonding curve because you've got um, your funds actually held over funds required um, just keeps ticking up because yeah, funds held goes up, but funds required stays the same. Um, so that's that's basically how the, the model works. It all goes back to the members. So what's super interesting, I think, about Nexus is that all of the capital backing these claims is ETH-based. So it's all in essentially Ethereum's reserve asset, which is ETH. Why did why are you guys Nexus going? Nexus is an ETH maxi. Yeah, it's it's like a it's an ETH. Um, it's it's hungry for ETH. Like it's an ETH monster. It just consumes more ETH, and the more ETH that it has, the more cover it can provide. Essentially, why why Ether? And have you thought about other assets, or what are the, kind of the trade offs, pros and cons of using uh, non Ether assets? Yeah, so we won't be all Ether forever. That's for sure. Um, we we started off with Ether because we believe that. Um, I mean. Sorry, stepping back, the key way to actually manage an insurance company here is to match your assets with your liabilities on a currency basis. So if you're writing claims, potential claims, or writing cover um, denominated in ETH, you have to pay claims in ETH potentially, or you have to pay claims in US dollars, die, um, then you should theoretically hold the same assets in the same mix. So if you write 50% cover in ETH, 50% cover in DAI, you should probably hold 50% ETH and 50% DAI based assets. So that way, if currency rates move, you've, you, they move on both sides of the balance sheet and your funding position is stable. You're not taking any you know, FX risk for an ex- yeah. like currency exchange risk in that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so we started with ETH only um, because we believe that most of the cover purchases would be done in ETH, and we were over collateralized to start, and so it was it was all it was all kind of okay. We're getting to the point now where um, well, we probably should start having more more of the value being held in Dai to match things a bit better, but it, it's okay for now. But the um, but we are a relative ETH maxi compared to other stuff, that's for sure. Um, the I guess what we need to do is when we kind of enable this investment earning stuff, we also need to balance the um, the weights of what the assets are and make sure that the currency risk is not too much. So in theory, the treasury, the, the makeup of the treasury and all the assets inside of it should generally uh, match or track onto the demand for cover based in uh, specific currencies. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So if, you, you know, if we're writing, as I say, you know, 50% ETH, um, cover and 50% die cover, then we probably want to hold 50% ETH-based assets. Um, and, you know, that could be staking or whatever. Um, and um, correspondingly, you want to probably hold 50% um, US dollar-based in, in investments in whatever shape or form that is. What, one of the things we've talked about a lot is uh, how, Hugh, you were able to put all of this in, essentially in smart contracts, right? And and presumably, the the typical traditional insurance industry, it costs 30 to 40% in administrative costs. And uh, your costs are much smaller, you know, rel- relative to the amount of, of cover that you can provide. So that's one efficiency gain in making all of this uh, Ethereum native and smart contract based. But I'm also curious about this. Um, could this thing continue to operate if uh, your team, sort of the, the, the management team and the developers uh, of, of Nexus kind of went away. I guess, how bankless is it? How decentralized is it today? And what are your goals there? 
Yeah, so um, not right now we wouldn't be able to. There are a few centralised elements um, that, that we're basically working to remove. Um, the The idea is to become a fully um, permissionless decentralised protocol. That's that's the goal. Um, we've got a few things to do um, to, to get there. There's a couple of um, more complex calculations that we want to bring on chain and we're kind of in the process of doing that. Um, but it's kind of a, it's definitely on the progressive decentralization end of the spectrum. Um, I guess relative to uh, something like a compound or something, we do have a lot more um, mechanics involved and um, and a lot more things that we have to iterate on and test. And, and we're, you know, we're going through that process and fine tuning stuff and working and working it out. Um, so, the, but we're on that process and, and we're working towards it. Um, in terms of like the actual kind of underlying risk there, there's effectively a multi-sig behind this um, that we have governance that can um, formalized on-chain governance that um, that does updates and stuff like that. Um, but there is also a, a, a multi-sig of the um, five advisory board members that they could do potential um, harm to the protocol if, um, if they colluded. Um, there is a um, protection um, there, the fact that they are actually legal directors of Nexus Mutual Limited, a company in the UK. Um, but, but you know, that is, that's the situation we are in right now to be blatantly out there and transparent about exactly what's happening. Um, and, but we're, I guess, working to, to remove that over time. There's always the question we learned in, in uh, 2008 of who, who insures the insurers, which I don't know if we have a good answer for right now. Uh, for for Nexus, but um, do you see any help on the way? Who's going to insure Nexus? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. No one right now. Um, we're covering open, um, but um, yeah, but no one, no one for Nexus right now. We have this treasury, and this treasury is funded by this bonding curve. With you, when you deposit capital into it, the capital is largely ETH right now, but it's going to diversify into a much more diversified basket of assets to mitigate risk. Uh, on the other side of that bonding curve is the NXM token, which is the token that can purchase cover, which gives you a some amount of rights to uh, the funds in the treasury if a particular contract goes under. Uh, and, and so this is the, the general core Nexus Mutual um, system. Uh, what we haven't covered yet is what happens when a contract blows up. And, and this has actually happened. So there are actually real life instances of, of uh, contracts blowing up. Uh, so, so Hugh, can you kind of walk us through the process of what happens when a contract that is insured by Nexus, quote unquote, blows up? Yeah. Um, so basically the cover holder submits a claim, um, in Ethereum transaction, um, and then that goes to create essentially a workflow item for our claims assessors. And so anyone can be, any member of the mutual can be a claims assessor by staking some NXM. Um, and then it basically goes to a vote. So this is these are humans interpreting stuff. So, um, you know, that has pros and cons, obviously. Um, it means we're massively flexible in terms of what cover we can provide in the future, but um, but it also means that, you know, there's, there's people involved rather than programmatic rules. Um, and so that's essentially um, a voting process, stake-weighted. There must be a 70% or more consensus on things. Um, and um, if that threshold not reached or there's not enough staking etc then it escalates to a full member vote where you where any member of the mutual can vote without staking um and that's kind of a resolution um mechanism or the dispute resolution mechanism i guess um and then depending on the vote 
um, it um, either gets approved or denied. Um, and so I guess um, we we paid our first claims of the PZX hack back in February. Um, it was, um, which was which was interesting. Um, PZX got hacked again recently. Um, <laughs> so um, is it insured? Uh, uh, no, it wasn't. So, um, well, there was actually two covers purchased two hours after the um, attack. Um, so I'm not quite sure what was going on there, but um, <laughs> but there were no covers that were um, out like live um, before then. So I'm, I'm pretty sure we would have paid a claim um, as a result of that event, but there was no one with any, no one with any cover. So the, there's no objectivity to insurance claims, right? There's no way to automate this in the, the payouts into a smart contract because when, uh, like, for example, if Nexus Mutual was around when the DAO hack happened, right? We call it the DAO hack, but it was more of a DAO exploit. And even, even more objectively, from the perspective of, like, a robot, the DAO hacker was really just using the DAO code as written, right? Like he didn't change the code. He didn't, there wasn't a, a bug because that doesn't, that doesn't happen in Ethereum technically, right? Like there aren't bugs. There are just, there's just code and then there's people using their code. And so, and so there's always going to be some sort of human subjectivity component to Nexus Mutual. And so how, how do you guys go around, uh, how do you guys deal with the issue of, you know, technically there's nothing that's actually like an exploit or nothing that's actually a bug. And so how do you determine what should be paid out and what shouldn't be? Yeah. So um, I guess the first point here is if you, if you could codify a way of doing it, then you could ignore the, you could get rid of the bug in the first place um, from a theoretical that's point. That's a fantastic point. Um, <laughs> so, um, so basically you can't do that really. Um the, the way we've done it is um, we've got essentially old school terms and conditions document. It's basically two pages long. It tells you what um, should be paid out and what shouldn't be paid out. And people make a, a subjective interpretation of what that means. And it all comes down to what was the intention behind the code. Um, like, you know, clearly, clearly the DAO, the people who coded the DAO did not intend for it to be able to be drained. Um Clearly, the people who go to BZX didn't intend it to be able to be exploited the way it was. So, you know, th those types of things, right? Um, and, and so, you know, th there's definitely human subjectivity in there. But I think that's, um, I think that's what people expect. Um, and, you know, that's, the, I think we're going to be in a much better, well, I believe we're going to be in a much better position with that type of stuff available. The, the, the one of the benefits that we've got here is that if we want to put out a new product, we can just write a new set of terms and conditions in a document and essentially socially coordinate around those and um, offer cover on, on anything, whether that's something on Ethereum, whether that's something on a different blockchain, whether that's something in non-crypto related, um, it doesn't really matter. We can use these same mechanisms and apply them to any risk. Well, I think we want to talk about some non-crypto, non-blockchain stuff later. Um, but one question I had, so what about an options-based approach? So you mentioned the open protocol. They have O tokens, and um, they're able to provide some level of insurance through basically people betting uh, on options. That doesn't seem to require as much governance. Is that a more scalable approach, or are there trade-offs with that too? Um, yeah, no, that's a fantastic approach. I love it. Um, the the thing that it does really well is works for tokenized networks. 
um, when you can like swap one token for another, for example, you got this token that's supposed to be worth um, one US dollar and you can swap it for another token, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, there's there's potentially ways to, um, to do that um, with Nexus as well um, that we're looking at. Um, the one thing you can't do with that is if you can't tokenize it, then um, you can't cover it in using that option-based approach. The, another advantage of uh, Nexus, of course, is because it's crypto native, uh, it's composable with all of these other money protocols. So we we use that uh, idea of of Dai, and you can you can literally have Dai and wrap that inside of some kind of a, a Nexus protected token and have an insured Dai, almost like an FDIC type of of Dai. Uh, inside of your wallet, and it could be just as as fungible as before. You could you could pay your bills with it, whatever. So that's something that's super cool. Can you talk about how Nexus's relationship with some of these other early DeFi protocols and the money Lego aspect? Maybe maybe talk about um, uh, YFI. So Wifey, they've got this Y Insurance dot Finance thing. What is that all about? Is that backed? Is that powered by Nexus? And how does it work? Yeah, it's basically white labeled Nexus. That's pretty much the one line description of it um, right now. Um, I'm sure Andre has different plans to do different things with it. Um, so he just but- put an, a user interface on top of Nexus, basically, and integrated it into the rest rest of the the you know wire and flow, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But he, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. It actually turns our cover into an NFT and allows it to be traded outside the Nexus platform, hmm. um, which is kind of the cool. protocol sync thesis metaphor in there somewhere. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, turn it into an NFT. So our listeners know what NFTs are. These are non fungible tokens. So this would be essentially like a, um, you know, a, a claim document for some a certain amount. What's the advantage of turning insurance into an NFT? Um, essentially, you can make it tradable, I guess. Um, that's kind of one of the big advantages. Um, but you can also like potentially split that NFT into lots of little bits and pieces. Like you create um, a token which represents fractions of the NFT, and then you can like really do some tricky stuff with that on like stream cover and do some fancy stuff. Um, so that's that's kind of um, a really cool advantage that you can. That, isn't done now but could um, quite easily be done in the future um and so those are the types of things that um composability on ethereum is just amazing um people we're only we're only doing the stuff we can kind of think think right now about or it's a bit easy to comprehend but there's going to be so much stuff that we haven't even thought of yet so nexus as an nft that would be like um you could create an nft for a 500 dollar policy on compound or something is that yeah 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 so it basically traded yeah, so three things, you know, the time of the, how long it's for, like, so that covers for a month, it's for this amount, it's on this protocol, those kind ah. of the, the three elements. And then you could, then what you could do is like, so okay, I'm going to buy a million on compound for a year. Um, and then, um, and then I'm going to turn that into a million um, compound die um, and wrap it with C die. Um, and so now, now I have a million C and then an XM die, whatever you want to call it, which is natively covered compound die um, that, that earns interest. So. That's crazy. Like there could be entire apps and entire businesses built around just taking the Nexus uh, mutual primitive and creating NFTs out of it and then you know, selling that in some way, wrapping that in some way. What, what about another one? Uh, so recently, I think this week, uh, Safe came out. So this is kind of like uh, insurance mining. Um, and there's a safe token. Can, can you tell us what that is? I haven't kept fully up to speed, um, but got a lot of questions about that. 
Yeah, I'm not absolutely fully up to speed on it, but I'll give you my best shot. Um, so, so basically, this takes the why, um, the Wi-Fi stuff that um, Andre's built, the NFT, and you can stake that NFT um, to earn safe governance token. Um, and I'm not quite sure exactly where the project um, is headed, was headed, um, all the rest of it, I'm not sure. Um, but the whole point was to kind of like bootstrap um, a, a new governance to- token so you can earn, um, earn that. So it it was basically just using Nexus effectively in the back end via Wi-Fi. Um, and um, so we just had a massive boon in cover purchases as a result of this. So basically people were buying covers so that they could farm um, safe token, um, not really knowing exactly what safe token was going to do in the future. Um, but you know, that's, that's what people are doing these days. Um, so that, that, that's kind of roughly what it is. And obviously there was, there's some stuff happened earlier today that I haven't quite got on top of, but, um, that may not last for that much longer. But the crazy thing about all of this is no one needs to ask your permission in order to build these things. Like safe team didn't need to ask your permission in order to come up with this NFT Nexus market, neither did uh, Andre and Wiren, right? They they could just build it on top of these primitives. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's 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 one of the amazing things, yeah. So right now, Nexus's core product is ensuring smart contracts because that's what DeFi needs, right? That's what we need, especially right now, especially with yield farming and, and definitely into the future in order to be legitimate. But like as Nexus grows and grows and grows, I would imagine its product offering can also expand. And so... Is there a future world where I can purchase cover on my my dog, my my house, like uh, my computer? Like, is is something like this possible? How about some healthcare in the U.S.? That'd be nice. Yeah, maybe. you know, fix that. Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, <laughs> Health insurance. Um, yes, um, with, with some caveats, obviously, but that's that's only what we've brought it. Uh, we built it to be able to do. I mean, our, our vision is kind of like a decentralized v- version of Lloyd's of London. Basically, come to the mutual with any type of risk, and if people want to back it, great. We'll offer some cover. There you go. Um, and so that, that's definitely the idea. We'll, we'll stay within crypto for a, a while yet to get some scale. But um, in terms of stuff outside crypto, it's probably more likely to be things where there's a reliable data source on the um, to assess claims. Um, so health insurance is probably the last thing we're going to do because, you know, putting public um, personal information available to, for people to assess claims should there be an event is probably not the best thing to do. Um, but we can do things like um, like earthquake cover or hurricanes or stuff like that where there are kind of objective, uh, reliable data sources to assess claims on a remote basis to start with. And then you can start um, developing the networks and um, distribution channels and stuff for where you have like localized um, claims assessment teams and those types of things because they should be able to earn um, in- income from provi- providing that work on the, on the system. So that's definitely where we're headed. It's a, you know, it's a long journey, but that's, um, we, we do have a, um, quite a big vision outside of crypto for this stuff. So if in theory that I, if I could convince the Chainlink oracles to somehow make an oracle about the health status of my dog, you could insure it with Nexus. Well, I mean, in theory, we could insure it anyway. Um, and like, if, if you're a claims assessor, you could actually hook up your own assessment up to a Chainlink oracle. That was, that's up to you. Um, you mm. could do that. Um, but um, I think what we need to do is make sure that um, there is a reliable way of, of, of assessing claims. Right. And yeah, yeah, if, if, if that's via Chainlink, great. 
David, you seem super concerned about your dog. Is he doing okay? <laughs> She's doing just fine. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. I got worried for a minute. So with with the the future world of of uh, you know ensuring real world items, real world phenomenon, uh, there's also the the relevant issue of like the nation state and, and KYC, right? And uh, Nexus actually currently has KYC built into it in in uh, specific arenas, like not not just purchasing cover for you know the typical contract like MakerDAO, but uh, for more specific niche use cases, and and that's just a, a function of uh, an artifact of how you guys bootstrapped the the protocol. Um, how, we, how what are your guys' plans to remove KYC and and also to uh, kind of remove dependence on a core key actors and become um, become deeper in the protocol synthesis? Yeah, yeah, that's it's definitely on the on the on the plans and in the plans. Um, so. We, you do actually have to have KYC to um, purchase cover as well. Any member of the mutual has to be KYC um, right now. Um, okay. So the, um, I guess the key here is that we have a legal entity in this thing. So we're kind of like a hybrid um, DeFi protocol, but we have a legal wrapper that gives us some benefits that you can't actually get within DeFi. Like we have limited liability on a per member basis, which is not something to just throw away light. Um, lightly, but um, but there are obviously trade-offs with all of this stuff. Um, so yeah, so I think the the key is decentralized on a on a gradual um, basis. Um, my my goal here is like remove the centralized aspects of the protocol, get them fully unchained, and then the rest of it. And then we have the option as a membership group to shed the legal entity if they wish. Um, and once you've done that, um, then you can remove the KYC. So um, that's definitely an option. I think it's up to the members to, to decide at that point. Um, but we can. That's definitely the path we're working towards. And is there a timeline on that? Is like, is that a small obstacle or a big obstacle? I, I think. Look, it's probably going to take us um, over a year, maybe maybe two. We'll see how we go. Um, the, the key here is that you know there are a few kind of um, more challenging. Um, incentive mechanisms to make sure we get right and we want to iterate on them and you don't necessarily want to harden them into a protocol too early um, when you're not quite sure if they've worked um, so that, that's kind of the, the, the approach we're taking making sure we um, iterate get things right um, and then once we're happy with it we'll end up with a hardened protocol that we can step away from love it fantastic uh, so in terms of other developments and other part things on the roadmap, like what, what are the next steps? Like what, what are you working on today? And then once that's done, what are you working on tomorrow? Yeah, so um, it's been a bit reactionary recently, given the DeFi stuff is just going crazy. Um, so um, I guess one of the one of the things we're working on is shield mining concept where basically um, different projects can provide um bonus rewards to nexus stakers that stake on their projects um protocol to kind of bootstrap early cover for new protocols um so that's that's an interesting one that'll be coming out soon um then we're going to be looking at things like enhancing like the core features of the protocol um things like offering partial claims um also like um potentially tokenized cover um and, and, and things like that then I also mentioned the investment earnings one before, but that that's going to be a key larger one on the, on on the roadmap as well. So there are quite a few things, you know, the priorities and stuff that does move around a bit with um with everything moving so fast. But um, but we've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up, and looking to you know integrate with more people and stuff as well is going to, is going to be key to to our success. 
So if you had to make a guess and say, say it's two years from now or five years from now and Nexus Mutual didn't work, it blew up for some reason. Uh, if you could guess why that would happen, what would, what would you guess? Uh, that's a, yes, good question. Um, the, I guess the, um, I mean, there's always a potential for a bug in our, ourselves. Um, that's, that's kind of one, one thing. The, I think it probably would be the incentive mechanisms um, on the staking side of things if we can't get those right. Um, I think they're pretty good now, but they definitely need to be looked at again. Um, and um, and we, we are looking at them right now. Um, and so I think we, we need some more iteration there. If we, if we have to make sure that those those um, staking mechanics work, because that's kind of like key to the whole thing. If you if you can't bootstrap cover on new stuff, then, you know, that doesn't quite work very well. So um, and you have to be, have an engaged staking um, community that um, that's really involved in this stuff. So um, those are probably the that's probably the one the one key thing or but you know there's always a potential for us to get hacked as well i guess Hugh, we started this whole conversation with the question is DeFi safe yet what's it going to take for DeFi to be safe for my parents for institutional investors for mainstream yeah it's, it's a good question i mean i think um i think you're going to have to have several protocols um key core ones that have stood the test of time for a while um, and that they become reliable. Um, you're going to have to have, um, unfortunately, you're probably going to have to have um, some sort of insurance or safety net of some description around these things to protect um, individuals. You know, you don't want, you don't want, um, you know, mums and dads or whatever putting in a chunk of their life savings and then it just blowing up, right? Um, it's, it's a bit okay. It's more okay when people are just gambling under their own um, and they know what's going on. But um, but I think we need to have those safety nets in place. Insurance is probably one, um, but I'm sure there are, there are other things that um, probably need to be involved as well. One of the conversations about the difficulty of spinning up ETH2 is that no one kind of wants to be the first through the door with when they deposit their Ether into the deposit contract to get it over on ETH2 because it's a one-way it's a one-way bridge, right? And and if it doesn't work, it's not coming back. Is has Nexus talked about insuring the ETH2 deposit contract? Um, we, we can <laughs> out, of, out of the box actually, um, on that one. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely an option. We can also cover the stakers. Um, so for example, if you delegate, um, your ETH to a, to a validator, um, because it's one way, um, you're actually taking on like, um, credit risk of the validator. Um, so, um, because, you know, if they stop validating for whatever reason they can't run their infrastructure then all of a sudden your um, ETH gets eaten up by penalties um, and so you know that, that there's there's definitely kind of coverable um, risk there that um, that we can look at Hugh this has been exceptional thank you so much for spending time with the bankless nation today I've got one concluding question so um, Vance Spencer from framework a few episodes ago made the bullish bold prediction that we would see 500 billion, billion with a B, locked in DeFi this cycle. If we get to, let's let's cut that. Let's say we're not as bullish as as Vance. Let, right. Let's cut it to, I, I know David is, but you know, I, I do this for the sake of uh, others who haven't listened to all of the Bankless episodes and aren't as bullish as us, David. So let's say we hit 100 billion. What percentage of that is insured? And what percentage of that is 
uh, covered in Nexus? Yeah, good question. We're covering about 2% now um, or something. Um, so I hope we can get up to something like 10, um, which ends up being a pretty big number if you multiply both those growth rates together. Um, but, you know, um, that's 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 what the opportunity is right now. It's a, it's a pretty big exponentially growing market. And so, you know, um, hopefully we can be there to, su- to support it um, and protect people as we do grow. All right. No, so no pressure it, here. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if total locked value is 500 billion, then we're talking 10, 10 billion in uh, Nexus cover then. Uh, that would be exceptional. And hopefully we can get that number higher uh, so that DeFi can remain safe. Hugh, thanks so much for spending the time with us. You know what? I'm really glad that you continued building through the bear market, my friend. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't quit <laughs> yeah. because if you did, we wouldn't have had this conversation, but we also wouldn't have had this entire uh, DeFi primitive. So uh, we, we appreciate it. It's all about the builders. That's what this series has been about. Thank you. Cool. Thank you both. Awesome. Uh, Bankless Nation, a few action items for you today. The first is this. You've got to read Hugh's canonical uh, Bankless article where he talked about the risk of lending to a smart contract. We'll include that in the show notes. Just get your head wrapped around the main risks when you're doing something in DeFi. And once you do that, uh, also read about how to protect against hacks with Nexus. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Uh, may make you interested in some smart contract cover for what you're doing in DeFi. Uh, finally, David, how are we doing on on reviews, man? I think we're 150, maybe more. What do, what do listeners need to do? We're we're pretty we're pretty happy about it. The Bankless Nation is strong, and we want it to become stronger. And the way that we do that is that we get the Bankless podcast to the top of the iTunes charts. We are already in the top 100 in the finance and investing category on iTunes podcasts, which is just fantastic. And as this bull market continues, we want to just pump those numbers up. Our goal is to get into the top 10 of the investing and in, in finance podcast charts. And the way that you can help us do that is by going to wherever you listen to podcasts and giving us those five-star reviews so that we can move up the ranks. There are some forgotten ICO podcasts that you know had a bunch of views during 2017, and for some reason, they're still sticky. And so I definitely think that the Bankless Nation deserves to be ahead of those. Uh, another fantastic resource that I, I highly recommend people who are looking to gain a further, more, more intimate understanding of how Nexus works. DeFi Dad made a fantastic video of how to buy insurance cover with Nexus. Uh, That is one of the videos that I watched in order to prepare for this podcast. Uh, And so that is should, if you are looking to learn more about Nexus, I highly recommend that video. We will include that in the show notes as well. All right, guys, risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky. That's why we have insurance. Crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. You could lose what you put in, but hopefully less if you insure it. We are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.